0: in four Pentecost is from the book of Acts chapter 2 verses 1 through 21. Listen now for God's word to you. When the day of Pentecost had come they were all together in one place and suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as a fire appeared, on each of, on, appeared among them and a tongue rested on each of them. <laughs> All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under, the, under heaven living in Jerusalem, and at the sound the crowd gathered and were bewildered, because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia... Thanks be to God. A round of applause for all of our actors. How exciting, right? The preacher Tom Long, in one of his sermons, talks about an experience that I think all of us have had at one point or another. A po- uh, an experience where we receive a gift and we're not entirely sure what it is. That we are gathered together at some family Christmas party or a birthday party or a bridal shower, and someone hands you a gift and it's beautifully wrapped, and all the eyes are on you as you open it. And you open it up and you wonder is it a pencil sharpener or a coffee grinder? Is it fishing lures or earrings? And the person who gave you the gift is looking at you with that, uh, that look of expectation as if to say, well, do you like it? <laughs> and finally, you muster up the strength and you say, oh, I love it so much. How, how could you know that I needed a meat thermometer? And they say, meat thermometer, that's a tire pressure gauge. We've all had that experience of receiving a gift that we're not entirely sure what it is. And here on Pentecost, as the Holy Spirit arrives, we are receiving a gift, a long awaited for, a long expected gift that Jesus tells his disciples that when he leaves, someone else is going to come in his place, that the Holy Spirit, the advocate, is going to arrive. And that just before he goes back to God, he tells his disciples to wait in Jerusalem For the arrival of the Holy Spirit. And so for 10 days, they gather together, they wait and they pray. And now, finally, 10 days later, the Holy Spirit shows up in dramatic fashion. The Holy Spirit knows how to make an entrance. And it was beautifully and wonderfully dramatized by everybody who participated in that retelling of the story. The disciples are gathered together, 120 of those Jesus followers are gathered together in an upper room somewhere in Jerusalem praying, and that's when the violent wind starts blowing and the violent wind is pointed in the right direction. (laughs) And then tongues of fire appear on each and every one of them, and they begin to speak in languages that they had never learned before. And all of the, the crowd of diaspora Jews who are gathered there in Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost, which was originally a Jewish festival before, long before it was the birthday of the church, they ask, how is it that we are hearing our own languages? Aren't all of these Galileans? Translation, aren't all these a bunch of backwater hicks? <laughs> and we hear them speaking as if they're the linguistics department of a prestigious university. How is it that we're hearing all of this? And some simply dismiss it and say, well, they're just drunk. And Peter, of course, says that part that makes everybody giggle, it's only nine o'clock in the morning. It is an exciting story filled with drama and theatrics and pyrotechnics. It's a gift. But what exactly are we looking at here this morning? What exactly is uh, the gift of Pentecost. And I think our attentions immediately go towards the dramatic, towards the exciting, towards the fact that these disciples are speaking in languages that they had never learned before. Um, There's a whole movement within Christianity called Pentecostalism. It's actually the biggest, fastest growing movement within global Christianity. And one of the distinctives of that movement is the speaking in tongues. And if you've ever been to a Pentecostal service, you know how exciting it can get. People dancing and jumping around, and then at some point during the service, somebody begins to speak in tongues, and to me it sounds a lot like gibberish. Is that the gift of Pentecost, the speaking in tongues? As exciting as that is, as exciting as it is to attend a Pentecostal service, I'm not sure that that's the gift of Pentecost. I'm not sure the gift of Pentecost is the speaking in tongues, because speaking in tongues is not an end unto itself. If all that Pentecost was about was this group of Galileans speaking in different languages they'd never learned before, then I think it would be little more than simply a magic trick. If we can get behind all of the theatrics, all of the dramatics, all of the pyrotechnics, and we can hear that that crowd of diaspora Jews speaking, I think that they name the gift for us. They say, how is it that we hear? That, I think, is the gift of Pentecost. Hearing, understanding, comprehending. The ability to hear someone speaking in your own language. That the Spirit is speaking, and this group of diaspora Jews hear, comprehend, and understand. Hearing someone speak your own language is an an incredibly important thing, and that transition from one language to another is not always an easy task. We know how easy things can get lost in translation. Sometimes words just don't translate very well from one language to another. And we know that simply from reading the Bible itself. That within the Old Testament, you'll find this phrase that reads often God's loving kindness. And it's the Hebrew word chesed. Can we say that? Make sure you get the H in there. Chesed. All of you, chesed. Yes, and so what it really means, what it signifies, is God's faithfulness to the covenant God makes with Israel. And there really is not a word that translates well into English to, to get at the meaning of that word, chesed. Or even in Greek, the parts of the Bible, the New Testament, there are four words for love. There's brotherly love. Think of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. There's family love, there's romantic love, and there is divine love. Well, in English, we just simply read the word love. So what kind of love are we talking about? Simply trying to read the the Bible in another language, because it should come as no shock to you. The Bible was not originally written in English. I hope that doesn't come as a shock to you. Is an act of translation, an act of moving from one language to another, and sometimes it takes some work uh, to get there. My friend Garrett, who you all uh, have met before, or most of you have met before, he's one of the co-pastors down at Fort Street uh, Presbyterian. When uh, we were in college together, he took uh, one of his summers, he went and spent the summer at a convent in Germany. It was like a spiritual pilgrimage for him there, and he learned the value of washing dishes, living among the nuns. And, uh, and whenever he would talk about me, whenever he would reference me, uh, the nuns would giggle. He would say, my mein Freund Anders, and they would all laugh. Well, I guess in German, the word Anders means different. And idiomatically, it means you're like your idiot, dumb friend. (laughs) (laughs) And so every time Garrett would talk about me, they thought he was talking about his idiot, dumb, stupid friend. Even as we move not just from one language to another, even within the same language itself, we know that there are different dialects. So I, like most of you, am a good Midwesterner. I grew up calling soda pop. Yes, thank you. But then I moved to New Jersey to go to seminary, and I was sitting in a restaurant one day, and I asked for a pop, and they looked at me like I was speaking Chinese. Or think even about the differences between American English and British English, uh, my son Axel is a fan of the show Peppa Pig, a British show named Peppa Pig. It's about this anthropomorphic 4-year-old pig who lives with her brother and her parents. And so he learned the British phrases for things. So when we would go to the gas station, he'd ask dad, "Are you going to get petrol?" <laughs> or when I would open up the trunk, he'd go, "What are you doing in the boot?" And I put windshield wiper fluid in the in the hood, he'd ask, "What are you doing in the bonnet?" All of these differences between languages, and then moving to Michigan, I had to learn what a uper was, <laughs> what a Michigan left was, and how to show where I live on my hand. Am I using the right hand? From yes. yes, okay, good. I'm still learning. These differences, even from one language to another, even within the same language group itself. But of course, it's bigger than just simply the tra- act of translation. Language is the way that we see the world around us. It makes the way, it makes the way we inhabit the world around us. Uh, Debbie Thomas, in her commentary in this passage, says that to speak in one language as opposed to another is to really inhabit the world differently. It's to embody the psychologies, the histories, the spiritualities of one group of people. And those differences can be quite enormous. So there's this great TED Talk given by a linguist named Lyra Borodisky, and she talks in that TED Talk about how um, she worked among a, a group of Aboriginal people in Australia And this Aboriginal community does not have the words for right or left. They simply use the cardinal directions for everything. And when she says everything, she means everything. So they would say things like, You have an ant on your southwest leg. Or, Can you move your cup a little north, northwest? The way that you say hello among this group of Aboriginal people is you ask somebody, You don't say hello, you say, Where are you headed? And your answer is, oh, I'm headed north, northwest a little bit of ways. Now, some of you directionally challenged people would have a very hard time communicating with this aboriginal group of people. Can you imagine that the way that you have to communicate with somebody is simply by where you are headed? Some of us don't know where we're going every minute of the day. But having to indicate where you are headed. How do you even begin to communicate with a group of people like that? Bordisky continues and she says that if you laid out a group or you handed a, somebody a, a bunch of photographs from their childhood to the present and you ask them to lay them out chronologically, we English speakers would lay them out left to right. It has to do with reading direction. Hebrew and Arabic speakers would lay them out right to left. But if you ask this aboriginal group of people to lay out their photographs chronologically, If they're facing east, it goes left to right. Or west, it goes right to left. they're facing north, it goes towards the body. They understand themselves, their, their, their self, not to be the center, but where they exist and live on the land dictates how they understand their person. Very different from how we as Western people communicate, where wherever I move, the landscape moves with me. They understand the world very differently. Of course, what about those languages where you have nouns that have been assigned gender? Languages like Spanish and German. Think back to your Spanish high school class. All the L's and the L's that are in front of uh, different, different nouns. Um, so in German, the word for the sun is masculine and the word for the moon is uh, feminine. In Spanish, it's the opposite. And Bordisky asks, does it change the way that they understand the world? Well, it turns out that it does. So in German, the word for bridge is feminine, has been assigned feminine, and in Spanish it's masculine. And So Spanish speakers will use typically masculine describers to describe the bridge, whereas German speakers will use feminine descriptions for the bridge. And let's take that even a little bit further. In German, the word for God has been assigned as a masculine noun. And so what does that mean for the ways that they understand God? Is it simply in masculine terms? What about seminary students like myself who go and read translations of German theologians who loom large in seminary classrooms, and the, the pronoun for God has been translated as Him with a capital H? Does it impact the way that we understand God? Is God just some big, giant, cosmic Him out there? it impact the way that we see the world? But I think even beyond just the languages of English or Spanish or German or the dialect that this Aboriginal community spoke, language is even bigger than that. I had a a supervisor when one of my seminary internships who asked me, "How do you receive feedback?" In other words, how can we communicate? How can I communicate feedback to you, criticism, the things that you're doing well, in a way that you can hear it, in the way that you can understand it? Or let's go even more. Think about that famous book, The Five Love Languages. How is it that my actions, my words, are communicating love to you in a way that you can hear and understand them? Um, That there are different ways of receiving love. My mother-in-law calls it paying somebody else in their own currency. And sometimes there's a rather large exchange rate. And I learned that firsthand when I first got married to Heather. When we first got married and we moved into our first apartment together, I would do things around the house. I would do the laundry and the dishes, and I would say, Look, Heather, look at all the stuff I did around the house. And she would look at me and say, So? You live here. You're supposed to contribute to the house. <laughs> and at first, I was, my feelings were hurt. But then I realized I was trying to communicate love to her in a way that she could not hear or understand. That the way that Heather receives love is through gifts. And it doesn't have to be something extravagant, like she doesn't expect a Lexus with a bow in the driveway, but it's those small things that say to her, I was thinking about you throughout the day. And let me give you an example from something that happened this week. It is the smallest, simplest thing. We ran out of hand soap in the kitchen and in the the bathroom, so I went and bought some more, and I was looking at all the scents, and I saw one that had lavender, and I was like, oh, Heather likes lavender, so I went and bought that one, brought it home, she said, I really like the scent you bought. Yeah, I said, yeah, I thought you might because I thought about how you like lavender. So now every time she washes her hands, she feels loved. <laughs> the simplest, smallest things. Language is all of this combined together. That language is really so much more than simply an act of translation or, or syntax or what word matches with this one. It's more than press one for English or two for Spanish. Language is all of this history, this spirituality, this psychology, all of the ways of seeing and understanding the world together. And so when this crowd of diaspora Jews says, how is it that we hear in our own native language? What they're saying is, how is it that we are hearing somebody speak to us in a way that we can understand? How are we hearing the spirit speak to us as if they understand the world in the way that we do? It's like that English idiom we have, uh, you're speaking my language. And if this is the gift of Pentecost, then it is a gift that keeps on giving. That the Spirit continues to speak to us in ways that we can understand, in ways that we understand the world around us. That The Spirit is fluent in all languages. The Spirit speaks to each and every one of us. I think that's an important thing for us to keep in mind, that God and the Spirit don't speak just simply in universal ways for all of humanity, but also in contextual and in personal ways. It's not just that God loves the world. It's that God loves you. It's not just that the Spirit speaks. It's that the Spirit speaks to you. And I am amazed at the ways that the Spirit continues to speak. I'm amazed at that as somebody who stands up here and preaches almost every single Sunday... Uh, I have the benefit on Sundays at the doorway or downstairs during coffee hour of somebody telling me what they heard during my sermon. And sometimes it's amazing to me what people tell me they heard because it doesn't match up at all with what I thought I had said. And when I first started preaching every single week, I used to think, well, I did a really bad job. I didn't communicate my ideas very well. I've had sermons that I've written that I thought were the best thing ever. They should be hung on the fridge like a piece of child's artwork (laughs) and no response. (laughs) I've preached sermons I thought should be burned and buried in the backyard and people responded well to that. And what it reminds me of for everybody who preaches is that we should not get too big of a head Because the Spirit speaks and moves in these services and speaks to each and every one of you in ways that I or any other preacher cannot control. It is why we pray the prayer for illumination before we read the scripture, before we hear the sermon, because we ask that the Spirit speaks to us. To hear the Spirit, I don't know about you, but I've never personally had the experience of hearing God or the Holy Spirit speak to me in an audible way. Some people have. And I don't want to discount their experiences. But for me, the way that I often hear the Spirit is through that inner voice, that sort of intuition deep within myself. I remember hearing it clearly when I read the ministry information forum for a little church called Greenfield Presbyterian in <laughs> Berkeley, Michigan, that Spirit saying, it's time to move on. It's time to apply. Peter names these other ways that the Spirit speaks to us. He says that your your old men will dream dreams and your young people will see visions. The Spirit speaks to us, I think, through our dreams, through those deep passions that exist within each and every one of us. Don't discount your dreams. Don't discount the things that are passionate, that you find exciting and joyful. That is the Spirit speaking to you. Frederick Buechner had this famous quote that says, the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep need meet, that is your vocation. Listen to the Spirit as as she speaks to you in those places where you find excitement and what makes you come alive. Peter also says that the Spirit is speaking through those who who are slaves, those who are at the very bottom of the world, that those who are calling out for justice and equity in the world, I think that is divine speech those who are calling out, dreaming for a better world, we should do well, we do well to listen and pay attention because the Spirit is speaking. Friends, the Spirit is still speaking to each and every one of us. Pentecost was not just an event of a long time ago. Every day is Pentecost Day. Every day is an opportunity for us to hear the Spirit as she speaks to us once again in this, our modern and contemporary moment. The Spirit speaks to us, and we hear her as she speaks in our own language. If you listen closely, can you hear it? Thanks be to God. Amen.